Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome everyone, it's a pleasure to have you and it's our pleasure to be talking to you today. That sounds so weird, by the way. People <laughs> understand it later, but bloody elders. <laughs> so uh, today we're talking about um, Orwell's essay, Pleasure Spots. Oh, by the way, I'm Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon. And <laughs> we, we just don't matter anymore, do no, we, Lewis? No, we don't. Has it come to that? It's all about Orwell. Um, so today we're talking about Orwell's essay, Pleasure Spots, but before we start, uh, let's have a, a chat with Simon. Simon, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. We just had a lovely steak dinner, and you brought with you a delightful bottle of wine. A couple of delightful bottles couple of wine. Of the second, the viewers probably, well, not viewers, listeners, well, there you go. I think we've had enough. There, there's the first <laughs> bottle of wine. The, the listeners will probably hear the second being opened shortly, but explain why tonight's wine is quite unique. Well, uh, tonight's wine is a Californian wine. To, to tell you the truth, I don't really know much about wines. I generally just drink French wine because it's got a reputation for being good. But I got this Californian wine because it is matured in bourbon barrels. And I, I suppose I love anything with a bit of a gimmick. So uh, the one we're drinking at the moment is matured in bourbon barrels. The next bottle... From 1924. From 1924. Not um, the wine, we're not that rich, but and, the bourbon uh, barrels height of the prohibition as well and um, the other wine was matured in rum barrels so let's see how that's going to turn out and let's see how we'll turn out at the end yeah of you'll, you'll know by the end of the podcast if we're coherent or not we're talking about the george orwell essay mm. pleasure spots this was published in the tribune george orwell's regular magazine 11th of january 1946 now when i came round to simon's place this evening, Simon said to me, Lewis, this is one of my top three George Orwell essays. He didn't even know about it before, but now it's in his top three. Simon, could you tell us why that is? Because it resonated with me. What I've started to learn as we do these essays is that an essay doesn't necessarily have to resonate with you for you to enjoy it and to be able to have a very good discussion about it. But those that do, those I can relate to and I can picture myself within the essay, I really enjoy. And more than any we've read so far, this one did for me. Not directly, I, I mean, can't think of too many pleasure spots that, well, that I can tell you about anyhow. But the themes from it I was really able to relate to. And I guess we'll talk about that later. Yes, this essay resonates with me and it has for a long time. Um, Ever since I started reading Orwell when I was a teenager, um, this essay has been one that's been particularly important to me because I think that it's another example of how far-seeing Orwell was. I think he really saw into the future of uh, mass pleasure and the commodification of pleasure and uh, other themes that we'll go on to talk about. Can I just say one thing quickly? As we, read, as we go through these essays, I hope the listeners agree that Orwell is remarkably prophetic. And I wonder why not more has been made of this. 
from his work in essays? Is it because institutions generally like to portray him as this dystopian um, portrayer of doom and a, and a future of, of neglect? And a lot of these essays don't fit into that narrative, so they just kind of ignore them. And had he been a more neutral commentator of his time, his essays these days, I believe, would be much wider read. I think you're quite right there. We've spoken before about how we would like the word Orwellian to become a bit more uh, wide-reaching and more all-encompassing when it comes to his works. Well, we hint at it in our introduction, don't we? Yes. Uh, and Well written by you, by the way. Thanks very much. And uh, so... I think one of the reasons for this is because when people talk about Orwell being prophetic, they're generally talking about 1984 and his predictions yeah. about uh, newspeak and screens in every house and things like that. But, but when you look at 1984 and prophecy, we, we have to stretch it to say it's come true. It's more metaphorical often, isn't it? But in his essays... They have literally come true. Not, not, there's no stretch of the imagination. These things have happened, and we can directly relate to it. That's right. And let's get into it. Um, Simon, what was the first thing that struck you when reading this essay? This man really loved nature, and he's back at it again. We've done Thoughts on the Common Toad and various other essays where nature is an important theme, and it comes back here again. This is a man who... Again, when people think of him, they just probably think of some Kafkan or Orwellian scene of this dystopian city which is grey and raining. Of no vegetation. No vegetation, predominantly indoors most of the day like a prison. But in truth, this is a man who was never happier than in nature, in the outdoors. Yes. Um, this essay was published a few months before Some Thoughts on the Common Toad. And I think we can really see in this essay some the development of ideas about nature and the importance of nature that would reach full fruition in Some Thoughts on the Common Toad. One of the points, one of the themes in this essay is the human shaping of the natural world yeah. and how humanity is trying to sort of replace the pleasures of the natural world with a kind of artificial pleasure. This essay is basically about the idea of places, locations that are dedicated solely to human recreation. The essay starts with Orwell mentioning the war and how the war had left a lot of people feeling jaded, tired, worn out. And because of that, there was this great appetite for pleasure and just letting go, recreation. And he's been reading in a magazine about the pleasure resort of the future, a place where, uh, as someone in an article George Orwell read puts it, somewhere where a man, specifically a man here, um, I, was, I was going to come on to that. Mm. We'll talk about that later. Where a man could relax, rest, play poker, drink and make love all at once. Good trick if you can do it. <laughs> and round the clock and come out of it feeling good and fresh and ready for the job again. And then he goes on to point out how plans for such 
pleasure spots include a lot of artificial things, sliding roofs, uh, translucent plastic, uh, skittle alleys, not real sunlight, but sunlight lamps. Neon. And then Orwell goes on to point out that when you hear pleasure spots, it reminds him of a poem by the romantic poet uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who wrote this poem, In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. And this is one of my favourite parts of the essay, where Orwell points out how in the 18th, early 19th century, the idea of the pleasure ground was bound up with the natural world, sacred rivers, gardens, uh, mountains. But in the post-war world, as he writes, uh, page 987 in the Everyman edition, in the hands of the above-mentioned entrepreneur, Kubla Khan's project would have become something quite different. The caverns, air-conditioned, discreetly lighted, and with their original rocky interior buried under layers of tastefully coloured plastics, would be turned into a series of tea grottos in the Moorish, Caucasian, or Hawaiian styles. Alf, the sacred river, would be dammed up to make an artificially warmed bathing pool, while the sunless sea would be illuminated from below with pink electric lights. The forests and spots of greenery referred to by Coleridge would be cleaned up to make way for glass-covered tennis courts, a bandstand, a roller skating rink, and perhaps a nine-hole golf course. <laughs> what was your reaction to this theme, Simon, of uh, humans adapting the natural world or, or covering over the natural world for their pleasure? I mean, another quote he says is, but meanwhile man's power over nature is steadily increasing. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I've had the good fortune to have lived in China and Japan, where I live now, in this economic boom that's happening in China and the, exp and the migration of people from the countryside to cities. The cities are drastically expanding and China's a mountainous country. It's got rivers, lakes, and how they believe they can conquer nature. One thing I like in Japan, and of course Tokyo is an exception, but in my travels, I get the sense that society here tries to live with nature, tries to harmonise its urbanisation around the forces of nature. And it's a big difference for me. I think one thing we can say is that Japan is, firstly, much more subject to the forces of nature than China is, because Japan is subject to random and sometimes massive earthquakes, which can, well, cannot be controlled. Look at the Sichuan earthquake. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. So China too, but I, I remember feeling very disturbed when I lived in China about the unprecedented urbanization of the country and the effects that will have upon nature. A famous example before my time there would be the Three Gorges Dam and how whole swathes of that particular part of the population and remnants of thousand years of history were just swallowed up in an instant with this, uh, under this um, project to create energy for an ever-growing population in urban areas. And, you see that in, in smaller portions all over China. And I remember feeling very disturbed by it, thinking, where, where does this all end? A, with regards to the ecosystem. B, with regards to the human spirit, which I think is more the subject of this essay. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that when you see such things? It disturbs me too. 
I'm very much with Orwell. I think that there's a certain amount of hubris involved when humans start trying to be the masters of nature. Uh, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic, if anything, over the past year, has done a certain amount to remind us of humanity's helplessness, or at least humanity's lack of complete power over the natural world, because the virus is part of nature too. Did you think in the aftermath of COVID-19 could have a positive effect in how we see nature? Because I think people now are starting to appreciate getting out of these enclosed urban spaces into places where there's more air, more freedom. I would hope so. Certainly, I know that in Britain, people have become a lot more aware of the importance of their local park if they live in the city, or they've become a lot very aware of how lucky they are to live in the countryside or, or the suburbs with access to nature. Does a bit of you secretly hope that nobody really does catch on to this getting out into nature thing? How do you mean? It's all yours. When everyone starts going out there, it's not going to be so idyllic as it is now. Well, that's another good point, because again, going back to the current situation in Britain, when I speak to my family over the phone, uh, they tell me about how they go to the local country park on a Sunday, and it is packed, yeah. because it, there's all these people trying to get out the house where they've been locked up for months. Have you climbed Mount Takao on the outskirts of Tokyo? I have. It, it's like walking through Piccadilly Circus, but a... a 15 degrees radiant. It's horrible. Coming on to the next theme, if I may bring one up. What do you think he means by life-hungry man? Well, I think this relates very much to the war and how men, in particular through the war, had been their lives had been consumed by duty, duty to their country, duty to a particular cause, duty to fighting um, in the Allied countries, fighting against fascism, and how these men were desperate. I mean, we've talked about the lives of soldiers before, haven't we, Simon? Yeah. How, um, one of the nice things about Kipling's poetry, if you've listened to our episode about Kipling, is Kipling is very sympathetic with how... Soldiers, when they're not fighting, they want to go large, as it says in the poem. And we never mentioned that in the Kipling uh, essay, but apparently go large was a phrase used in Victorian England, which I quite like. Um, so <laughs> the soldiers, when they weren't fighting, wanted to go large a bit to have some life, have a bit of recreation. And I think that's what the men who had been fighting in the war wanted to do as well. Or the sailors, when they got into port, would go large as well, wouldn't they? I, lo I like the bit where he, he gives his five keys to modern man's pleasure. Shall I read them out? So we've got, first one is, one is never alone. Second of all, one never does anything for oneself. Third, one is never within sight of wild vegetation or natural objects of any kind. Fourthly, light and temperature are always artificially regulated. And fifth, Fifthly and finally, one is never out of the sound of music. Can I just say, one of the reasons I like this essay and why I think it's so prophetic, George Orwell is describing to a T not only every theme park currently around the world, but every shopping centre as well. 
and he's describing them 30, 40, 50 years before theme parks and shopping centres became part of most humans' lives. Can I go further than that, Lewis? He's describing every modern human, at least in the developed world. Humans now are very adverse to being alone, very adverse to have to nothing happening. Do you see what I mean by that? So they always have to be activated in something or another on their phone. Stimulate, constant stimulation. Never just sitting back and appreciating their surroundings. Not being in front of something now is seen as a, a moment wasted. And when I say something, I mean a TV, a phone, a laptop. Seldom a book, <laughs> unless it's on an, on a, on an iReader. So yeah, you're absolutely right about shopping malls and think about places like Starbucks. It's you got mu- any cafe or pub, well, music's blaring out. All any the time. shop, any biz place of business, and why is it playing that music? Orwell writes about the radio um, in English homes in his day. In very many English homes, the radio is literally never turned off. I know people who will keep the radio playing all through a meal. The music prevents the conversation from becoming serious or even (laughs) coherent and prevents the onset of that dreaded thing, thought. Is that a very British thing? Put the music on so we don't have to actually bloody talk to each other. Well, I don't know because it also makes me think of, as listeners, regular listeners will know, I have a Russian spouse and it's a big part of Russian culture Uh, having the TV on in the background all the day. for No one's watching it, it's just on in the background. Particularly the 24-hour news, as as if you need to respond to some sudden news story. No, you're just having friends over, but the news is always on. And now we even have have things like, I bought one for my parents, the um, Amazon Echo, Alexa. So you're always in companies, artificially created companies. Never alone, never left with your own thoughts. Like I liked how you emphasised that word. We're afraid of our thoughts, aren't we? We were just talking before this podcast started about how often at night we reminisce and it stops us from sleeping. That one moment where you, you can't escape your own thoughts when you go to bed. Well, you say that. Um, I'd really like to bring up the idea. I think it's one of the main themes of this essay. Uh the mechanization of what should be natural processes. So a lot of people these days, when they have trouble sleeping, I know people who use apps to help them get to sleep. And maybe you have experience of this, Simon? Yeah. I, I, I bought this special device. It's kind of earplug, electric earplugs which are connected to my phone and they play relaxing sounds like whale songs or the beach, forest at night, rain. And I, I can't sleep without them. No. Now, I'm not, I'm not judging at all. And I don't you were until I said that. <laughs> I don't want anyone to think I'm judging because... Come on, Judy. In, inability to sleep is a terrible thing and I can sympathise with it. And I think anything that helps you get to sleep is, is good. But... Sometimes I do wonder, is it a problem in our society that something that should be as natural as falling asleep now has to have an app for it? What do you feel as someone who has to use that kind of thing? I agree. I've always just put it... My mind's too active. 
I find it very difficult when I go to bed to to turn off my thought process to and see how you're using technological language. You're a human being, but you're talking about turning off. There you go, yeah. I think this is something that Orwell was worried about. And I think it's, yeah. again, we talk about how prophetic he is. I think it's something that's come to pass. We are behaving or, or thinking almost like we're machines. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm forever moaning to people about how I have to use a sleeping device to help me sleep. But I've got to the stage now where if I don't use it, I, I can't sleep. So I totally agree. So, Orwell was very concerned about mechanisation of, of natural processes. He was writing about how the instinctive horror which all sensitive people feel at the progressive mechanisation of life was something that concerned him. And he thought that the reliance on technology, rather than making us more sophisticated, was, as the last line of this essay says, driving us nearer to the animals, brute beasts who just need to, who just desire food, sleep, and, uh, well, nothing else. Yeah, I completely agree. Something that, which is along a similar theme that I was thinking about reading this essay, and it comes from his quote, man needs warmth, Society, leisure, comfort, and security. He also needs solitude, creative work, and a sense of wonder. Now, people do go into nature these days, but they're going into nature so they can capture it on their phone and post it on Instagram. So they have, we've commodified nature. We get cultural or social capital from nature now, rather than just appreciating the essence of being in it we're using it to enhance our pers our portfolios our personal capital and that's dangerous isn't it because that's all part of the commodification of society and being extended into the to the natural realm and what's the, what's going to be the next step in that it's going to be the mechanization of nature to a, to a level that suits humans and their needs as as social beasts. One can't help but think these things go in stages. Um, last week, Simon, you and I were watching that thing on TV. Don't talk about that. Sorry, the other thing. The other thing, okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, do you remember, it was the opening of a new theme park in yeah. Japan, like a kind of Showa land, where there is this nostalgic street that's set up like a Japanese street circa 1950 to 1970. Mm. And it was full of people, all in their masks, despite the state of emergency, and just walking around this recreation of the kind of street that their grandparents used to walk down in their youth. Meanwhile, just up the road from Simon here, a genuine old Showa business has just closed down and the building's been completely flattened because heritage in Japan and the rest of the world, the developed world, heritage has become commodified. You can't just go to your local bar run by some old boy anymore because that's not making a big corporation money. You have to go to old boy land and drink in a, a bar that you've paid over the odds to eat at or drink at. But isn't it worrying that the, the Tokyoites were more comfortable by experiencing Showa life and Showa culture in its mechanised, commodified, false form 
than actually going to a bloody fishmonger's with this old boy selling fish in the manner actually sold during the shower period. Well, and I guess that's why he had to close down because I never saw a soul in there, and he was very elderly. But it's amazing, isn't it, how people are more comfortable in that false version of it than actually going and appreciating the real version of it. This is the point. First of all, the commodification, commodification happens with heritage, and now it's happening with nature. And we always make heritage forms of our past very comfortable. This new shower land, I imagine, is very nice and public toilets. There's probably a Starbucks hidden behind one of the ironmongers somewhere. And it's disturbing, it really is. I mean, we, we walk, after we finish our podcast, we walk past there, don't we, on the way back to the station? Because I have to walk you there because. Because I'm scared. You're scared and staggering. <laughs> <laughs> but um, from the minute it closed, it took a week for it to be scaffolded. The developers moved in. The next week, the building was down. And tonight, it's been flattened. And they've already dug the trenches for the new building, which will inevitably be flats. And the developer finally got his way. And will they have a little plaque there to say that Mr. Kenji-san was there for 50 years selling fish? No, it won't, will they? It's gone. It's gone. It's disappeared. Dust, dust in history. But you can go to a theme park and see what something like that would have looked like. So I think the point we're trying to make is, if this is what's happening with human culture, what's going to happen with na nature and the natural world? Yeah. Did, did you pick up any message that could relate to Orwell's stance against totalitarianism in this essay? I didn't. Where did you, where did you find that? Well... There was this bit where Orwell mentions, I, I already said how he talks about how bringing us closer to the mechanisation of life instead of elevating humanity brings us closer to the animals and how thought is cancelled out by constant entertainment like having the radio on in the background. And it reminded me, we talked about Mein Kampf recently, Orwell's review of Mein Kampf. Do you remember how Orwell wrote that if Hitler got his way, the greater Germany would be a huge brainless empire? And it seems to me that this is a theme in Orwell's work, that totalitarianism, whether left-wing or right-wing, wants to encourage the absence of thought and independent thought. And I think Orwell was concerned that capitalism, uh, if it commodified nature, if it commodified pleasure, would also stifle independent thought. I think that's a really excellent point, Lewis, and I didn't pick up on that. I think I fall in, I've been falling into a trap where when I read these essays of not looking for things related to totalitarianism. I don't, because I don't want to try and find that in places where it's not. So perhaps I've gone too far the other way, because that's a really good point and something I wish I had picked up myself. But I totally agree with you. By being constantly entertained, stimulated, it numbs our thought process and doesn't give us time to consider 
the institutional mechanisms and power relations that are determining society. Have you heard of a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death? No. It's by a writer called Neil Postman. Uh, he's got very good delivery. Um, Neil Postman originally wrote this book in 1985, and when it was published in 1985, it was about TV and the way that TV reports particularly the news. And Neil Postman's whole idea was that... Can we just call him Neil? Neil. <laughs> Neil's... I, I can't take him seriously, the poor fellow. Um, like his best mate, Darren Milkman. And his brother, Pat. <laughs> um, so Neil's whole idea was that the news was becoming more like entertainment than nuanced fact factual reporting. Mentioning no names, Fox News. And this was in 1985, and he was arguing that how the valuing of entertainment over serious nuanced discussion was leading to political turmoil and social turmoil. And I think that has only increased since the beginning of social media. Do, do you remember when we were kids, uh, talk shows like Parkinson mm. and Terry Wogan? In the United States, it would have been, I guess, um, Johnny Carson? Yes, and Letterman. Letterman. Not so much Letterman, because he's going to come into the latter category I mentioned, but I remember Parkinson. He would have a conversation with these people about their lives, about their thoughts. When I watch a talk show now, they're just seeing who can eat the most jelly in 10 seconds, who can burst a balloon with a fart, that kind of thing. Because... Listening to people have an actual conversation about life, society, and their role within it was far too in-depth for the modern human. But watching them seeing who can smash as many milk bottles with a ping-pong ball in a minute seems more suited to this mechanised new human who needs instant gratification to stay alive. You don't want deep thought, you just want tricks. Yeah. And like you say, with the news now... The the news should just be reporting the news, possibly in the most neutral way possible. But what happens now is the commentators on news programmes, they all have their own shtick. They have their own play they need to get forward. And they, they bend every news story to their shtick, to their, to their play. And it's, I just find it so see-through. And I'm worried no one else, nobody else sees it. I'm not saying I'm so bright that I can see it and others can't, but... Perhaps because I do read Orwell, I, I'm aware of these things. And hopefully people listening to this podcast can, can help them as well. This idea of, um, I think the whole thesis of Neil's book is in the title, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I often worry, speaking personally, I am, I'm not saying I'm a perfect George Orwell ac acolyte who's spending all of his time thinking about... You're a George future. Orwell Stallard type. <laughs> Um, I'm hanging in tightly. Um, <laughs> I'm, hanging. I'm not a, a perfect George Orwell follower. You know, I, I, I get up in the morning and I put in my earbuds and I listen to a podcast. Um, and sometimes I do think, am I cancelling out my own thoughts? Should I be doing this? It's something I genuinely worry about quite a lot. Because you do need time as a human being for reflection and I think increasingly we're losing our time for reflection. And what is 
one of the reasons for that is because we want to be productive, we always want to be learning things or doing things that will benefit us. But what is that whole, where, where does that whole concept of being productive come from? It comes from capitalism and it comes from the idea that we, we are all, we must all create commodities. We, we must, you know, time is money, that sort of idea. Yeah, well, there's very few aspects of society that haven't been commodified now. So I do, I write a lot about the commodification of language and how that's been commodified. And a lot of commentators now of today's society, and we can call it the neoliberal age, talk about the commodification of absolutely everything in society. Michel Foucault talked about it. Now, there's no area of everyday human life that hasn't been commodified hasn't been turned into a product that can be bought or sold. I like Foucault more and more. <laughs> You've got to lend me some of your books. If it's if it's the last thing I do, do I will make you a Foucauldian. You'll, you'll come along. I refuse to wear the leather, though. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to be that Foucault. So something that resonated with me, if I may bring it up, and it comes from the quote, much of what goes by the name of pleasure is simply an effort to destroy consciousness. Guilty as charged, Lewis. How about you? Oh, guilty as charged. Again, I just mentioned listening to podcasts so that I don't have to think my own thoughts in the morning. Um, by the way, you've read Down and Out in Paris and London. Did you see any parallels between this essay and Down and Out in Paris and London? What, being stuck in the kitchen washing dishes? And not being out in nature. There's that, but um, in Down and Out in Paris and London at one point Orwell writes about the idea of luxury and how people will pay for luxury. They'll go to a really expensive hotel, pay for a really nice, what they think of as a nice meal, but because he was a dishwasher and he was behind that green baize door, he saw how, you know, the the waiters were sticking their fingers in the soup and licking them <laughs> and farting before they went through into the into the dining hall. And Orwell wrote about how people, when people pay for luxury, they don't pay for quality necessarily. They're just paying for the idea of luxury. And that really put me in mind, or rather this essay really put me in mind of that. I don't want to be too academic with this, but I'd encourage listeners to go out there and Google symbolic capital by a guy called Pierre Bourdieu, which is where associating yourself with something of prestige is just as good as being it. So I think that relates to what you just said, like being seen to be eaten in a Michelin-star luxury hotel or restaurant is what they're really after. They know they can get just as good a food, farts and all, in some other place, but being seen there. Can, can I just tell you a little not anecdote, but personal experience. You, you know, and maybe some people listening to this who know me know, I used to be an adventurer. I did a lot of adventure trips around the world for charity, like cycling around the world and things like that. One of the reasons I did it, A, was for the adventure, but B, without meaning to sound ridiculously yoga-ish and pretentious, was to find myself. I didn't. I never, and I realise that now, never, ever, ever got close to reaching into my own consciousness. Every time I possibly did start to consider my own consciousness, I immediately rejected it. 
So those trips were very sensory experiences. Just appreciate, I appreciated the nature around me and appreciated the challenge of it all, but never really used that experience of being in pure nature to understand my own consciousness. So, guilty as charged. Well, I think that Orwell puts it very well when he writes that the whole notion of admiring nature and feeling a sort of religious awe in the presence of glaciers, deserts or waterfalls is bound up with the sense of man's littleness and weakness against the power of the universe. And that's what I meant when I mentioned hubris earlier. Um, I think the virus has made us all feel quite little and weak. Uh, and there's a kind of, there's a good version of that and a bad version of that. And I think the virus has been the bad version. But I, I think that the whole idea of devoting yourself to pleasure and have, you know, always be on your phone or always uh, ignoring the fact of existence, uh, the fact of your littleness in the face of time in the universe. There's a kind of hubris to it, isn't there? I do remember feeling extremely overawed. Some of the great things I saw in terms of, I remember being in Alaska, I was in the middle of nowhere, I hadn't seen anybody for three days, and just feeling very insignificant, very small, very little, and very overwhelmed and overawed by the whole experience. Don't you think, though, sometimes it can be quite a nice feeling, feeling insignificant in the face of it all? I appreciate it now, ten years later. Does that make sense? Mm. I'm thinking, God, how lucky I was to be literally in the middle of nowhere without a human soul for a day on either side. But at the time, I just felt, dare I say it, a little afraid. Mm. Is that because I have become so mechanised as a, as a first world or developed world Urbanite. I think so. Yeah. I find that sense of smallness in the face of the universe quite comforting because it helps me to think that no matter how bad I feel about my immediate problems, the universe is so much bigger and time is so much longer and in, in the long run it doesn't actually matter too much. What I wanted to finish with, Simon, was... Orwellian pleasure. We've talked about it before. The pleasure of nature, the pleasure of simple food, the pleasure of a good book. What is Orwellian pleasure and why was Orwell so concerned with the idea of pleasure? Why does it run through his essays like this? I think you've answered the first part of that question. The simple things, nature, pubs, home-cooked food, a cup of tea. I think Orwell would have loved travelling to Japan. I think he would have loved the meticulous preparation of simplicity in a country where to make a cup of tea in a tea ceremony takes half an hour, where preparing your doorstep could be a day's task. Do you not think you would have really enjoyed that? I find it hard to say because I have read in his diaries some references to Japanese culture and he didn't really know very much about Japan or understand very much about Japan but I think that one thing you can say about Japan is people take pleasure in minutiae don't they? Yes and, and I think he'd have liked that that harmonization of nature in your immediate surroundings and how that is the being not what you can do to it but what it already is. 
and how you can incorporate your, yourself into that. I think you'd have really liked that. But to answer your first question, a sleepy village in rural Suffolk, sitting in a beer garden, drinking a pint of home-brewed ale, looking out over the River Orwell. And then maybe reading a few uh, poems from your second-hand collection of poetry yes. that you've just bought from a very small second-hand bookshop. And when he reaches down to pick it up from the floor, he, no he notices a toad set upon it. That's an Orwellian pleasure. That's an Orwellian <laughs> That's day. An pleasure. Speaking of these pleasure domes that he mentions, these pleasure spots, can you think of any modern examples? Uh, well... Maybe, certainly the Disneyland, that's a massive pleasure dome. Um, we haven't even got into the rights and wrongs of such places, because I have to admit, I rather like Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea. I didn't like it. But, well, you went there during the pandemic. But, yeah. um, but again, you wouldn't want to go every day. These places are places to go now and then. Can I say one more thing? I know you're not a big fan of Weatherspoons, and I've been trying to bring you around to Weatherspoons isn't all bad. I have to say, my opinion of Weatherspoons has more been coloured by the political stance of its owner. Uh, but I do actually rather, I know he's really inspired by Orwell's essay, The Moon Underwater, mm. and I know that they don't play any piped in music in Weatherspoons, which I, was I really bring appreciate. Up. He refuses to play music, refuses to have TVs and sports on the TV. He wants his places to be where people can buy an affordable pint and talk. This is what really conflicts me. Do I, do I go with all, like, the five things I agree with him on or the two things I don't agree with him on? But with, with, with regards to politics, it means you can also not buy a Dyson Hoover. Because you're talking about Brexit, aren't you? And you know, Dyson was, I think, more influential in Brexit than the guy who owns Weatherspoon. Yes, the great patriot. Well, then, that was really enjoyable, Lewis. So I, I think we have to get on to part two of the Q&A, which we started last week. Yes. Thanks I... for the questions, by the way, but there were so many. We're having to do a part two. And I think uh, this week, Lewis is going to be the asker, which I'm a bit uncomfortable. I prefer asking to answering. How about you? Um, well, I haven't tried asking yet, but uh, I've, I've, I've in, in life, I mean, um, I've had a few. I've had to think about some of I've these. I've had so a few as well. <laughs> I, I might, I might come in on some <laughs> of these questions. So I've been sent some really good questions from one of my brothers and his partner. Thank you very much. First of all, Simon. Yes. George Orwell is often referenced when talking of government and state surveillance. Mm. How prophetic do you think his writing is in terms of current political discourse and the behaviour of the UK government in particular? That's an excellent question. The first thing I would say is let's not or let's be careful of falling into the trap of associating Orwellian themes with everything that we dislike. So when we're talking about the current state of British politics, and what I would say that relates most to the essays we've been reading is how the culture of celebrity, of how something appears, is taking precedence over substance. It seems to me, no matter what the current Prime Minister of Great Britain does, it doesn't matter to the people who are supporting him or voting for him. It's what he 
claims to represent that they're voting for. The substance of what he's saying is very empty, but the picture of what he represents seems to be more important. And I think Orwell would be pretty disparaged with that. This question was asked in reference particularly to his famous books like Animal Farm in 1984, but also his essays. And Going back to last week, you said it already today in today's podcast about Mein Kampf, about how the population, they want them to be mindless. Yes, and also um, I would say that if you want to understand why Britain left the European Union, then first of all, familiarise yourself with the term take back control, and the phrase Brexit means Brexit, and then read George Orwell's essay Politics in the English Language, yeah. which will explain to I, you why those terms changed history. A misuse of the word freedom and independence. Next question. How was Orwell's non-fiction received in his lifetime? I think I'll pass that one on to you. I'm not... <laughs> This is terrible to say as the host of a this, George Orwell podcast. This is your more your area than mine. Um, I'm pretty sure that he wasn't that successful until a few years before his death. He had regular work. He worked writing mainly for the Tribune, which was a kind of socialist, democratic socialist magazine. But I don't think he really became a household word until after his death. You and I, we often mention Michel Foucault. If, you, if you're in the know, he's important. But most people don't know who he is. And I think that's how Orwell was in his days, in his days alive. I think we mentioned, or you mentioned recently, how Down and Out in Paris and London didn't sell very well. It sold like 70 copies and on release, and then very few after. I think he gained a bit more prestige after his Spanish writing, but even then, people on the left often denigrated him as well. Well, he was a, tar a target of attacks from both left and right, and people in the centre were afraid of him because they assumed he was left. So and again, people who read those type of things would have known him, but the general populace wouldn't have read academic pieces on the Spanish Civil War. It wasn't until after Animal Farm that the general public started to know who he was. If you read his As I Please essays, though, you do get the sense in the As I Please essays, he's often replying to letters that have been written uh, in response to his articles. So, but we reply to emails. Well, true. And we're not George Orwell. <laughs> um, so I think he stirred up a bit of controversy in his time. But Here's a good one, Simon. What is Orwell's weak spot? Chauvinism. What kind of chauvinism? We didn't talk about it in today's essay, but he refers to society as man, which is something that I think even those days is a bit of an oversight. He's very patronising at the beginning of the essay to a female reporter. In Bookshop Memories, he says that only men read the books you can respect. Did he write anything about feminism? Or perhaps the suffragettes and things like that? Not that I've come across. I can imagine, I don't want to speak out of turn here, that he might have not been entirely sympathetic to such things. I, I'm sorry, but we have to be honest about this. There is a theme of chauvinism throughout his work. Yes, and also, um, we I don't, I don't think we've really mentioned it much, maybe once in the As We Please uh, episode, but there is a 
theme of uh, homophobia in Orwell's work as well. He, he, homophobia he, or overt machoism? Well, there is kind of machoism as well. Yeah. Um, because, again, that kind of ascetic public school, uh, healthy chap sort of uh, oh. uh, posturing. He uses the word, he uses some kind of unpleasant slurs against gay people like pansy and things like that. I've, I've known so many people that casually use homophobic slurs, but I know for a fact they're not homophobes, they're just being overtly macho in social contexts. Some people say that Orwell's homophobic posturing might have been a result of his rejection of public school culture. Um, we have to remember that he was of the same generation as people like Evelyn Waugh and uh, very, well, out or as out as you could have been at that time, poets like W.H. Auden, who were upper class and uh, some people make excuses for Orwell saying he was rejecting that kind of culture, but uh, of course it leaves a nasty taste in the mouth to the modern reader. I don't want to sound tabloidy here, but are there any, have there been any suggestions that perhaps Orwell himself might have been closeted homosexual? Well, I believe that it's, it's said that he had a kind of what is called like a passionate friendship with a young man who he was at... Uh, Eaten with, I think his name was Cyril Connolly. He became quite a famous uh, writer as well. Um, I've never, I've not looked into it, but I have heard it said. Okay, let's not get too tabloidy, both of us. But sometimes that can be a cause of extreme language when talking about homosexuality. Which three essays would be your desert island Orwell? And of those, which would you save from the tides? That's an excellent question. Very Radio 4 question. Who asked that question? My brother, Tom. That's a brilliant question. I, first of all, can I just say that I think you're better placed to answer. So I'll just I'll, I'll give my answer very quickly, but I think it'd be better for you to give a more detailed answer. But um, I would go um, Spilling with Spanish Beans, Today's Essay, Pleasure Spots, and uh, Kipling. I'm, I'm very pleased that there, two of those are ones that I introduced to you. Indeed. My, or which would you say from the tide? Oh, God. Uh, Kipling. Why Kipling? I just really enjoyed making it, enjoyed reading it. It brought up many things I felt which are very important and relevant with regard to imperialism and also about the aesthetics of writing. It's really cool. How about yourself? This is going to be interesting because you've read them all. I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone to say Boats on the Common Toad, because yeah. I just think it's so hopeful, such a hopeful essay, and probably one of the most hopeful ending paragraphs in English literature. I love how that essay, you think it's all about nature, but it's not, no. is it? It's not. And otherwise, I would say The Moon Underwater, because I love pubs so much. Watch this space. And... Probably his essay on Charles Dickens, because I'm a big Dickens fan as well, and it's quite a long one, so it would keep me going. Watch this space also. Um, and I would save Common Toad from the tides. What kind of um, what kind of shoes do frogs wear? I don't know. Open toed sandals. <laughs> do we have time for some more? Yeah. Um. So I have one from a member of the aristocracy. Um, 
Lady Jemima Watson might be a pseudonym, writes <laughs> about Kipling and Orwell. While I like both authors, I wonder if you have a favourite. I think this is more directed towards me. You answer um, that. What would be your favourite? Who would be your favourite author and why? Uh, can I just say, first of all, I don't know what your answer is going to be. Kipling or Orwell? Yeah, is this, is this difficult for you? Or is it very much depending on time and place? It's Kipling. Really? Because Kipling just produced so much more varied work. Orwell was good at essays. He was good at... He only wrote one novel, didn't he, Kipling? No, he wrote a couple of novels. He wrote, a, like, a schoolboy novel, and he wrote um, Kim, and... Well, I don't think Kim was a novel. I've read it. It was a novel. No, but it was um, a series, wasn't it? Well, in a, in a newspaper. put the series together, it makes a novel. True. Um, so he wrote novels, he wrote poetry, and he wrote great short so stories. Orwell wrote good essays, and he wrote novels, but... I don't want to say it's samey, but it's all Orwell. Kipling really takes you out of yourself. So what writings of Kipling were not associated with the British Empire or India? Well, he wrote some very good poems about England and about the English landscape, particularly Sussex, where he lived in his later years. He wrote some very good poetry about English history, and he wrote some short stories related to the First World War as well, and some children's books. Well, Orwell wrote about the Spanish Civil War. And um, he wrote this lovely children's book about a toad. <laughs> <laughs> In a junk shop. Yeah, a toad. toad that ran a junk shop. Gosh, that, that, is, that is a classic, that's a children's book. There you go, Lewis. There you go. That's the how toad who lived in the junk shop. And then when the, the owners closed up at night was when the world came alive. Okay, um, question. What do you think Disney did for Kipling regarding the Jungle Book? I've never seen it. Um, personally, I think, in short, I think Rudyard Kipling is only part of modern popular culture because of the Jungle Book. I think if he hadn't written that or Disney hadn't made The man who would be king. Listen, it's a great film, but do you think anyone under, under 40, 40, apart, apart from, from you, me, <laughs> and in spirit I'm 105, <laughs> Um, do you think anyone under 40 has watched that recently? Mm. Um, okay, uh, just a couple more. Um, we say that every time, don't we? Yeah. And that's after the podcast. <laughs> okay, given your interest in horror, sorry, kind of directed towards me again. Given your interest in horror, are you planning to cover an episode about Orwell and ghosts? I'm only aware of a letter he wrote about a ghostly sighting, but I'm not sure if he ever wrote much about the supernatural or horror as a genre. Well, before Lewis answers this, I will say that I'm very much looking forward to that. But we're going to have to record that podcast in a special place. Yes, we are. Let's go up to some really old rickety ryokan in a forest somewhere <laughs> in rural Japan. Um, the answer is yes, we are going to do probably in October an episode about Orwell and the Paranormal. The thing is, it's actually a fairly rich subject, so uh, I have an idea about talking about his ghost sighting, about his uh, encounters with the paranormal. There's been some very interesting articles written by other writers about Orwell and the paranormal as well. So it's quite really? a rich ground. I think we could do more than one episode. I didn't realise this was a thing. 
Um, so definitely we're going to get onto Orwell and the paranormal. Also, uh, not just ghosts, but superstition, because Orwell, despite the fact he was an atheist and fairly rational, was quite a superstitious man as well. And he did write a bit about astrology too. Okay, final couple of questions. What influence do you see from Orwell on literature in the 20th century and the 21st? The incorporation of politics into literature. Literature being dysotopian, I know they seem very obvious answers, but we don't have to always go too deeply into it. I don't think there has been a single writer of dystopian fiction since 1948 that has not been influenced by Orwell. I particularly see his influence in books like The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, um, and perhaps books like The Man in the High Castle, uh, which is a kind of alternate history about what would have happened if uh, Hitler had won the war and America had sided with him. A lot of political commentators that as well are clearly influenced by him, such as Christopher Hitchens, a favourite of mine, who openly said, Orwell is my hero, I base my career on his thoughts. So we're running over a bit, but I think this is a really interesting question to end with. Is there anything Orwell said or wrote that you disagree with? I haven't read enough of his essays. I just, I'm sorry to repeat myself, I'm just not too keen on when he uses certain lexis with regards to homosexuals, other races and women. But themes that he wrote about, I didn't, I just couldn't get on board with the junk shop and what they represent. You, you were coming round by the end. I was coming round, but I just have to be honest. And How about you? Again, like yourself, uh, apart from his homophobia and his uh, misogyny, which is really part of the time he lived in, the culture he grew up in, I'm generally rather on board with what Orwell wrote. Maybe as we read I will come across something I disagree with. One day we will read his essay Notes on Nationalism, where he makes some rather sweeping statements about Scottish and Irish nationalism, oh, saying that they're based, <laughs> based solely on hatred of the English, which I think isn't quite right. But again, he was writing at a time when at least Scottish nationalism was a kind of fringe movement, so maybe... I mean, I mean he's only talking about countries. entire national anthem is based upon one victory over the English army. But yeah, he had no point there whatsoever. Listen, full disclosure... A I'm Scottish identity has nothing to do with the hatred of the English. Of course not. <laughs> but we'll talk about that another day. Or we probably won't talk for the rest of the night now. <laughs> or ever again. <laughs> we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks, eh? Right, let's end it there with a cup of tea brewing. Righto, thanks very much for listening, everyone. And, as we always say... Orwell, oh, well, that, that ends, ends well! well.